Well, thank you, Roy and Heather, or I should say, thank you, Roy and Heather, because they're here, which is pretty awesome. I got to be honest with you and confess that being in this building for the last month and a half, singing by myself has been good, but it brought me to tears to sing with other people and just want you to know how much my soul longs to sing and to pray and to be with you um, physically uh, in a way that looking at a screen will never ever, ever match. And so should the job of e-pastor ever become a thing, you can feel with great confidence. I would never apply for such a thing. I don't enjoy it very much. Um, I just long to be with you. And so that's, that's kind of my heart. If you would take out your Bibles and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that will be our text this morning as we continue on in our series entitled Life in the Church. It's an important series for us for many reasons, including that 1 Corinthians helps us to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ has impact over every single part of our lives. Such that when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. We are to see that nothing but Christ and him crucified contains instruction. And instruction on division and sexual immorality and church disciplines and lawsuits and right worship. Paul is showing us that the gospel is involved in all of these things and in every single part of our lives. Beloved, we're to see that what is normal is that the gospel saves us and then the gospel matures us. It's not like you get saved and put on a shelf until he returns. It's like you get saved, and then you get sent on a journey of ever-increasing Christ-likeness, both in our moral character and in our doctrinal understanding and in our relationships. We're to become like Christ in these different areas of our life, all growing in Him. To put it in theological terms, you're positionally sanctified while you're being progressively sanctified. You're deemed to be like Christ while you're becoming like Christ. That is, Christ has redeemed you. And then he begins to conform you into his image. And listen to this. This is all supposed to happen within the context of a community of believers called the church. Because according to the scriptures, for us to be mature, we're to be in the church. Friends, the New Testament at no place even suggests the idea that it's right for there to be free agent Christians who love Jesus and yet despise or neglect his bride. You just will not find it. What you see studying the scriptures is that the New Testament clearly teaches that the church is his body. It's his bride. The church is our family. The church is what grows us up as we gather together as people of different ages, of people of different experiences, of different expressions, all under the banner of the salvation of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians is written to a local church in Corinth. He's addressing things in the church. That's how we need to hear it, and it's how we need to receive it. We need to be gathered. And I understand that's a funny thing to say when we're on a computer. This isn't how it's supposed to be. We'll get there again someday, but the church is supposed to be gathered so that in our gatherings, we can proclaim as a body that I'm not good enough. And that you're not good enough. 
and that he's not good enough, and that she's not good enough, and that none of us are. In fact, we gather together to proclaim that there is only one who is worthy of honor. There is only one who is worthy of glory, and it's Jesus. He's the only one who's good. He's the only one who's sufficient. That is our testimony. That is our corporate confession, and it's one of the reasons why the church is so important and powerful, because we need to be reminded of that regularly, because the world is always going to preach to us, be enough, try harder, do more. So we gather together a group of people going, no, Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient, and so we gather corporately to confess that he is the one who is worthy. And then, of course, to listen to the proclamation of his word that he might continue to transform us, to grow us, and to sanctify us. Beloved, last week we were in 1 Corinthians 8, and it was such a timely text for us. Because on the surface, it seems like the text is about food sacrifice to idols. In fact, your Bible probably has that as the subheading. But when you read it, when you study it, when you dig deeper into it, you actually see the real issue that Paul is challenging is their pride. Verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And as we walk through the text, it was evident that there was one group who practiced one way and another group that practiced differently. And the problem with both groups is that they were trusting their knowledge. They were trusting their experience. They were trusting their opinion. They were taking their experiences and projecting it onto everyone else that you must see everything through my lens, through my experiences. And so they were not able to see their opponents through their eyes. They're only able to see them through theirs. And Paul challenged them to consider that it's not right. And it's not loving. That we're to be willing to to listen. We're to be willing to love. We talked about the clanging gongs and the symbols. That if we talk and have not love, 1 Corinthians 1, we're clanging gong. We're a resounding symbol. We're just making noise. So we are to be reminded that they will know we are Christians by our love. So last week we made two applications. The first was that we consider other people's responses to the coronavirus, understanding that not every single person is going to come at this from the same perspective. Not everyone's going to have the same experience. This has nothing to do with what website you read or who you listen to. Friends, oftentimes those are distracting arguments so that we can belittle one another. We need to appreciate that some people have real fears that we don't get to speak into without listening to them. We need to understand that other people have real experiences or they might have other people in their life that they want to protect. And so rather than belittling them with our arguments, we need to listen to them. This is so crucial for us in the church now in protecting our unity, that we not just declare that what we think is true and everyone needs to follow me. We have to be careful about arguing our knowledge and forgetting love. And then we looked at a second illustration. And of course, that was related to issues of civil rights. 
Because oftentimes when you hear the words Black Lives Matter, the right response, the Christian response, is not to provide your knowledge or to shut them down. It is to love and it is to build up. Beloved, as white evangelicals, most of us fit into that camp, we have so done a disservice to the church by always seeing everything from our perspective and our experience and expecting everyone else to live their lives and lined up in the way we see the world without listening to people. Because if we took time to sit and listen to people, to listen to their pain, to listen to their experiences, we would approach things a little bit differently. And this is categorically true about us as white evangelicals. Do you know the thing that we're white evangelicals are most known for is what we're against? We hate homosexuality. We hate homosexuals. You know why that is? Because most of us don't have any friends that, that struggle with same-sex attraction. And if you did, you might still detest the sin. You should. It's not in the scriptures. And yet you would have a much greater compassion and a much greater love because you heard somebody's experience. It's the same thing with the Black Lives Matter, with race issues. Beloved, we're called to listen, to hear pain. They're incredible illustrations, both timely. Who would have ever thought when we started 1 Corinthians that we'd get to deal with civil rights and global pandemics? But both of those things are addressed in this text. Friends, Paul ends chapter 8 by saying in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul had the right to eat meat. Paul knew the arguments to eat meat. And yet Paul, in order to love his brother and the full knowledge of his brother's struggles and the knowledge of his brother's pain, opted not to eat meat in order to love his brother. He responds to his brother by sacrificing his own rights. Love motivated him to give up his right. Love motivated him to live differently. And so this morning, as we enter into chapter nine, you need to know, you need to see that Paul is not moving on to a different subject. He doesn't say, as he does in many of these passages, there's not a transition. Paul's going to press on to this idea to keep leaning into this idea of giving up our rights for the sake of others. In the first 18 verses, Paul seems to be responding to a question in Corinth on the same topic. He lumps them together surrounding the fact that, I, that as an apostle, he has rights, even though he never claimed them. What Paul's going to do here is he's going to defend his apostleship and defend his apostolic. I got to make apostle a adjective. Apostolistic my wife is laughing at me right now. Apostolistic rights, even though he never claimed them. And now he's going to illustrate again, what does it look like to sacrifice your rights for the sake of the gospel? Same idea, he's just bringing it to a different context. So let's look at verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? 
If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Seems to be some question, was Paul an apostle? Well, beloved, we need to recognize an apostle is a sent out one. And Paul was sent out by the church in Antioch to plant and build churches, the very thing that he did in Corinth. So Paul asserts, I was sent here. I worked among you. You are my workmanship. You are the very proof that I'm doing what I was called to do. He's asserting his apostleship. So then he continues in verse 4 to assert his rights as an apostle. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Paul's going to begin to assert his right that, that apostles, that people in ministry have a right to financial considerations. They have a right to earn their living from doing what they do. And so Paul begins to clarify and defend. He's got a right to earn a living. He has a right to be compensated. As a side note, I'm interested in verse 5. I want to study it more. Never, ever noticed it before. But if you look at verse 5, I'm just, side note, we'll camp here for 10 seconds. Paul asserts that an apostle has the right to bring along his wife. And he points to Peter. We don't know much about the personal lives of the disciples. We do know that Peter was married. And clearly the text seems to suggest that from time to time, Peter traveled with his wife. It's fascinating. I'll have to dig into that some other time. If you know anything about it, send it to me. I'd love to read more. Uh, but back to the text. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of the fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Paul's arguing, am I making this up? Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses. He's going to appeal to the Old Testament. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we've made, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you... Not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. What Paul does is he gives a full theological defense of why apostles or even pastors are to be paid. They're to be compensated. And he quotes the Old Testament, and he alludes to the New Testament, pointing to Jesus, asserting he had the right to receive financial considerations. He had the right to be compensated. 
And if you're watching the text, you're supposed to see the parallel here between this and in chapter 8 when he talks about the reality of false gods. He's paralleling his experience with that of the Corinthians. He's making a sound argument. He's giving his knowledge. This is what's right. This is what makes sense. He's drawing a parallel that he has a right to be paid, and yet he's going to decline the right. The same thing he calls the Corinthians to do in regards to meat. Paul knows the arguments. Paul can give the arguments. Paul can give a sound defense, and then he bypasses the argument. It's like he says this is completely logical, and yet I have a higher value. And church, that's where we're called to be. Sometimes we can make good arguments. Sometimes we can make sound arguments. And sometimes we need to see that there's a higher value than our experience, and it's love. So before Paul steps into this, he foregoes his rights. He says, I'm willing to let go of some things for a greater purpose. Listen to what he says in verse 15. But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such provision. This isn't like a tricky, um, I'm not trying to get something from you. I'm not writing this so that you'll support me. For I would rather die than anyone deprive me of my ground in boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid it upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul's saying it's not a question whether he's going to preach the gospel or not. He's going to preach the gospel, verse 17. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to make as so as to not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. What Paul is articulating here is he's making an argument. I could be paid. I should be paid. The Bible teaches that I should receive some financial resources, and yet I'm not asking, in fact, I'm demanding not to be. He's giving them a personal example of the reality of chapter 8. You could eat meat sacrificed to idols. You know that you can. And yet you should be willing to give up that right for the sake of your brother. Love is worth more than your rights. And so for the Corinthians to love their brother was to sacrifice. And if you think about their sacrifice, it was merely an inconvenience, right? Don't eat at some parties. When you go to the butcher shop, ask some other questions. Be willing to engage into some harder conversations with some of your peers. Willfully choose inconvenience for the sake of your brothers. But then step into Paul's application. Because Paul's application is far greater than what he's calling the Corinthians to. I have the right to be paid. And yet I forego that right. And beloved, that is no mere inconvenience, right? For Paul, that was a daily toil of hours upon hours upon hours of tent making. It required a complete lifestyle change for Paul. Paul could have come in, done his normal thing, could have come in and 
gone synagogue to synagogue, place to place, preaching all the time, but that's not what he did. He changed every part of his normal life. And so Paul brings it to application in these last verses. And I want you to consider these examples. Because when we start to think about it through the context of everything he's writing, that the Corinthians should be willing to give up a little, that they should be willing to be inconvenienced as a means to love their brothers, and that Paul's giving them a greater example, that he's willing to be inconvenienced a ton to the extent that he's changing his entire life. He's giving up a huge right as a means to love and serve his brothers. Beloved, we're to see that as common in the church, that this is our mutual calling, that we would be willing to give up our rights to love and serve the body. Listen to what he writes in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Paul starts by saying, I am free from all. Now, you have to appreciate when he says, I am free from all, he's actually making a pretty clear statement. Some commentaries suggest that the reason Paul chose to go unpaid in Corinth was not because he didn't believe he could be financially paid. It's because it was perceived in that community that if he was, that he'd be influenced, as if somebody might be buying him off, as if he wouldn't truly be free. As if he's saying... I'd only be saying, or I'd, you might think that I'm only saying this because they asked me to. I'm only saying this because they told me to. And Paul could have argued that with him, couldn't he? He could have, he could have stepped in and said, what I've received from Christ, I give to you. The very thing he'll say later in 1 Corinthians. But that's not what he does here. He sees a greater opportunity for the gospel in the denying of his rights so that he might assert, I am free from all and a servant to all, so that he might win more of them, so that the audience who was afraid he was being influenced might undersee his freedom, for the audience who was seeking to influence him might see his freedom, so that everyone would understand that he was there to be a servant, not to be remunerated. Listen to me, Paul says, sacrificing his rights or giving up some things that he has a right to is worth it. And that it opens doors for the gospel. Was it hard on Paul? Absolutely. It would have been significantly difficult for Paul and Barnabas to decide, hey, let's make tents for a living. Clearly, they had the skill. Clearly, they had the ability. But then to take those hours, and rather than doing ministry to do that, was a sacrifice. But it was more profitable for the kingdom. Or more simply put, Paul saw that living sacrificially like Jesus allowed Jesus to shine even more through him. That more might see Jesus. They might experience Jesus because of his sacrifice. So he explains it further in verse 20. He makes it, he gives us some contexts. 
To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. In order to do ministry with Jewish people, he lived according to Jewish regulations. He placed himself under the law. Why? So that he could have a better ministry to those under the law. Could Paul eat pork? Better, could he eat bacon? Could he eat shrimp? Yes. He could do a lot of things that were permissible by Christ, but not by the Jewish laws and customs. And yet when Paul went to the Jews, rather than arguing his rights, rather than asserting his knowledge, he elevated love by denying himself. I'm not going to choose to serve you ham. I'm not going to choose to offend, even though it's his right, even though he could. And it wasn't just the Jews. Paul's actually going to point out, and you're going to see by the end of this, he kind of covers everybody. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. That verse seems confusing. Welcome to the club. It's probably the hardest sentence to translate in the entire book of 1 Corinthians. But what Paul is arguing is that the Gentiles are outside of the Jewish law, but they're not outside of the law of God. They're not under the general revelation of God. They're outside the specific revelation of God, but they're not outside the general revelation of God, if that makes any sense. But the point is, to the Gentiles, I chose to be a Gentile, to reach the Gentiles. He acted like the Gentiles. He talked like the Gentiles, so that he could walk amongst the Gentiles. Now, we need to be epically clear about this. Is he walking into morally impermissible ways to do that? Absolutely not. I, it's hilarious the way people will argue some of these things. Is Well, I need, to go, I need to watch these shows so I'll be more relatable. I need to do these things so I can be – that's not what he's articulating. He's articulating a willingness to love those outside of the law to love Gentiles in a way that's applicable to them so that he's meeting them where they're at culturally. Paul's willing to put the spiritual needs of the Gentiles over his individual rights. He's willing to sacrifice. He's giving you the Jews, he's giving you the Gentiles, which frankly covers the entire world. But he continues in verse 22 to say, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Friends, what we're to see is that Paul's greatest value was not his rights, was not himself. His greatest value was the gospel. So much so that he was willing to forego anything so that the Jews, the Gentiles, the weak might be shown the gospel. So here's the challenge. What about you? Paul spends two chapters in a letter to elevate love over knowledge. He spends two chapters arguing, articulating that our, our pride can get us in the way that we will want to exalt ourselves, our own rights, our own experiences, and thereby neglect the Jews, the Gentiles, and the weak. 
that we might be so selfish that we miss the gospel because we're so wrapped up in me. Is your life wrapped around your wants, your desires, your needs, your rights? Is it about you? Because, beloved, if you're more interested in asserting your rights than loving your brothers, that is a serious challenge to the gospel, and it most assuredly reveals an idol in your life. What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to let go of? Because if these questions aren't on your mind, it may well be because you don't care well about the people around you. And I'm not just talking about your next door neighbor, though I may be. I'm talking about everyone. When Paul gives the illustrations of the Jews, the Gentiles, and the weak, he's covering literally everybody. His desire to see everyone reach so that he would give up rights here and he'd give up rights there and he'd pull back here and he'd pull back there. All that the gospel might be elevated. Are are you willing to be inconvenienced? Are, Are you willing to ask a better question here or there? Just to seek somebody out? Just to seek understanding? Are you willing to give up everything? And that, those are the two illustrations you see both in the Corinthian church and in Paul. We're willing to be inconvenienced. I'm willing to change my whole life. Last week when I spoke about the Black Lives Movement, I did so purposefully. And all I asked was that we be willing to listen. From a white evangelical perspective, it is to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. It's to recognize that from our position, we see things from our understanding and we don't see it from others. And so what does it look like for us to be willing to listen to those who are disadvantaged? What does it look like for us to be willing to listen to those whose lives have been very, very, very different than our own? What does it look like to let go of my quick answers and listen? And that still applies here because Paul is illustrating for us in another way that we're supposed to sacrifice our rights, our privileges. And it's not something we Westerners are good at. In our church in Dallas once, we were trying to put on a camp. Um, and we had a camp we wanted to put on for these refugee kids. Uh, we asked for, uh, I think the right number was $50,000. I could be wrong. Uh, and we needed 50 volunteers to make this camp work. Um, by the end of three weeks, we'd raised like $75,000. And we had zero volunteers. Why? Because for some people, it's easy to give up resources. Yeah, I'd give $10 to that. I'd give $100 to that. Why? Because it placates us. It makes us feel better. Yeah, I'm involved. Here's a couple of dollars. But we don't like to be personally involved. We don't like to sacrifice our time. We don't like to incarnate ourselves in a way that Jesus might. Friends, don't forget Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us 
And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now listen for a second. While we were sinners, while we are completely undeserving of anything, Christ sacrificed his rights and he sacrificed his life. He incarnated himself on our behalf. He stepped into our story. So here's the question. Whose story are you willing to step into? How are you going to embody Jesus to somebody? What does it look like for you to incarnate yourself to our African-American brothers who are going through an awful lot of pain right now? Last Sunday, I was after church, I was pushing my daughter on a swing. It's uh, interesting, my, my youngest. She says to me, Dad, I don't normally sit in the service. I'm only a first grader. So yeah. She said, sometimes you use words I don't understand. Okay. Like what? She said, sometimes you talk about God's sovereignty. What does that mean? It means that God is in control. It means that he is completely in control of absolutely everything in a way that no president, no king, no politician, no leader ever could be. God is utterly and absolutely in control of all things. He's sovereign. Okay. Hey, Dad, when you said that we're called to mourn those who mourn, what does it mean to mourn? It's a great question. Love, that's... That's incarnating ourselves, to be willing to weep with those who weep. Our brothers and sisters, we don't have to necessarily agree with them on every line, 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 doctrinal statement or every political thought or ideology. We need to recognize that when our brothers and sisters in Christ are mourning, that we should mourn with them. How do we incarnate ourselves to those around us? And even last week, not just our neighbors, but to those who are really different than us. How do we incarnate ourselves to our African-Americans amongst us? How do we incarnate ourselves to our African brothers and sisters among us? How do we incarnate ourselves to the internationals that are around us? And how do we incarnate ourselves to the nationals that are around us? How do we incarnate ourselves to our neighbors? How do we incarnate ourselves to our family? What does it look like for us to be willing to sacrifice our rights or put some things aside in order that we might be better lovers of people and a better example of Jesus. Now, church, when I say put love as your highest value, I have not once asked you to degrade your doctrine. I have not once asked you to take sin considerations and put them to the side, not even once. What I have said is we love people well. We'd be willing to hear their story, thus causing us to be more compassionate about their positions, more understanding. And then when we hear those stories, to be able to advocate on their behalf. I'll be honest with you. On three different occasions have I sat down with men who have had serious struggles with same-sex attraction. Do I believe homosexuality to be a sin? I do but I look at it so differently now because I've wept with a guy who hurt in a way I'll never understand. And I've invited them to our church because just like the rest of us, he's a sinner in need of grace.
Love, we're to listen with compassion, to hear from people. We're to hear the pains, to hear those who feel so outside of us, so far away. How do we incarnate ourselves to those people? Listen to how Paul closes. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? We all start at the starting line. The gun goes off. Everyone comes out the gate. But only one receives the prize. Run so that you might obtain it. Run so that you might obtain it. Be willing to sacrifice yourself. He's laying out the Christian life as if to say, if you're going to make everything about you, everything about your wants, your desires, your needs, you're not willing to sacrifice Brothers and sisters, you may not finish the race. Run that you might obtain it. You're not going to win. You don't have to. Jesus wins the race. He wins it on our behalf. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul articulates that as believers, that as a church, we're supposed to be willing to sacrifice our rights, our needs, and our privileges for those who are different, those who are weaker than us. Church, there's nothing about this text that's supposed to be comforting to us. I think we're supposed to hear it and respond. I heard a man say once that the job of the church is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And sometimes we need to recognize our own idol of comfort. I need to recognize that. And to be challenged to the reality that as Paul writes to these Corinthians, to mature them up, as he writes to them in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they be mature, that part of that maturity is that we be willing to put away some things, that Christ would be exalted, that the gospel would go forward. Church, let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for Jesus because in Christ, we have what we never could have received on our own. Father, not one of us is good, not even one. And Father, even on our best day, our motives are terrible if we're honest about it. Father, till my last breath, I will struggle with sin. Till my last breath, I'll have sin in my life I haven't even recognized yet. Father, in Psalm 139, we're to be reminded to ask that you would reveal sin in our lives, that we'd see our shortcomings. Father, I'm so thankful for the guys in my life who, who ask from time to time, hey, hey, do you see anything in me that's unrighteous? Father, that's a maturity beyond measure. 
and a maturity we should all strive for. So Father, as we seek to follow you, as we seek to become like you, could you continue to transform our lives that we would be better lovers of people? That you would allow our pride to be utterly destroyed. That your son would be exalted. That I might decrease and that he might increase. That I would lead a more compassionate, loving life. That I'd be willing to sit and listen to sinners. That I'd be sitting listen to the weak, that I'd be willing to sit and listen to those who are entirely different than me and to not value my experience over theirs or my education over theirs or what I know over what they know, but to be willing to walk a mile in their shoes. Father, I pray for us as a church. I pray for us as a global church that you would help us to be better listeners and lovers of people so that those who have felt wronged by us, whether by sin or by skin color, Father, that you would redeem that. That you would give us a fellowship with people from all different ethnicities, and backgrounds, and ages. Father, that you would build among us a diversity that proclaims that Jesus is sufficient for all of us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.